You're listening to PorchDrinking.com's The Porchcast, brought to you by ONTAP Credit Union. And now, The Porchcast. All right, everyone, and welcome to episode 104 of The Porchcast. My name is Tristan Chan. I'm your host and joined once again for the first time. We've got the full crew here in 2003, 2023, sorry. Uh, Brian, <laughs> Brian Vanderweerd and Corey David. Fellas, how is it going? It's so great to see you once again. Well, I'm happy to be back in the States after a little bit of a trip uh, overseas and good to see you guys, obviously. I know it's been a minute since we got back on the show, but um, we're looking good over here. I know. I missed you guys. How was uh, I, I want to hear a little bit more about your trip. We'll talk about it here in a second. Sure. Um, but before we do, as always, we want to give a big shout out to our friends at ONTAP Credit Union. ONTAP Credit Union isn't your average financial partner. They make banking as easy as enjoying your favorite beverage while providing great financial advice in a friendly and welcoming environment. With ONTAP, Colorado comes first, which is why they offer low loan rates for cars, homes, credit cards, and more. And with ONTAP's mobile app, you can have instant access to your accounts, whether you're meeting friends at a local brewery, out on the slopes, or wherever your next adventure takes you. Member-owned, Colorado Proud, federally insured through NCUA. Find out more at ontapcu.org. Um, very excited, guys, to welcome two guests to the show today. We've got a we've got a twofer for you. Um, this uh, this episode 104 features our friends at Firestone Walker Brewing, uh, and we've got Bradley Miles, the R and D and Innovations Manager, and Sam Tierney, the Propagator Brewery Manager for Firestone Walker. Fellas, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Good, good, good. Thanks for having us. Excited yeah, thanks, yeah. Tristan. We're very stoked to chat with you guys about all of the the kind of fun stuff, the the small batch stuff, innovate, innovation efforts, um, talking about special releases, stuff that you know started out small and now might have grown to become mainstays uh, for the brewery. Um, but you know, I want to start out by hearing a little bit more about kind of the innovation arm and and kind of how that program got started at Parson Walker. When did when did the innovation program get started and uh, who helped launch that division? Can you guys fill us in a little bit? So, you know, kind of going back, back in the old days of Firestone, um, you know, we did a lot of innovation, but it was done, you know, one batch at a time on our 50 barrel brew house, um, barrel projects. There was a lot of clandestine barrel work going on in the early days as barrel works was getting going where, you know, barrels would be squirreled away in the warehouse, you know, and then you'd stumble across them when you were staging malt for the next week. Um, you know, so we did a lot of stuff like that, but we never had a, a separate brewery or a real separate system dedicated to doing innovation work. Um, and then, you know, as the years went on, um, you know, we were looking at basically getting a pilot brew house, trying to figure out, you know, how we could do a little more. I think, um, you know, the last decade as um, craft beer really kind of became more mainstream and, um, you know, started really taking off as far as the diversification of styles, the popularity of all different kinds of beers. Um, you know, we were interested in doing more and we needed more bandwidth and more capability to get that done. Um, so we decided we were going to do a pilot brew house and, um, you know, the, the choice was made to put it down here in LA. 
And, you know, as you know, anyone from California knows, yeah, we're, you know, it's a, it's a long drive uh, up and down the state. So we're not exactly right next door. Um, so it's about three and a half hours on the road, um, depending on how the traffic is getting it out of LA. Um, and we opened here in 2016. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of small batch work here. A lot of, um, you know, it's a 10 barrel brew house and we generally do 20 barrel batches. We have double batch tanks. So, uh, we make enough beer to service our pubs and to do, you know, work out new ideas and things like that. But, um, you know, there's also a lot of innovation work and a lot of pilot work still done up at the brewery, both at the, the lab and bench scale, the one barrel scale, the, um, you know, and then the, all the work of scaling up to the, so Brad, maybe you could speak more to how that system works up there and how that came to be. Yeah, so um, up here we have eight little one barrel mini fermenters where that's kind of like my my little playground up there where I could take existing wort streams and test different hops and with no pressure of having to sell it. Sell it. Um, and we do bench stop. We do a lot of GCMS work, like some hardcore um, science stuff up here, um, which all comes from up here. We run all of our beers through it, but we have a we have the, the, the capability to do small stuff with existing brands and not, again, not where you have to, have to selling it or dumping a batch down the drain. Yeah. So, how much, how much has shifted from like your guys old way, older way of doing things? I know you still come out with like uh, higher ABV, bigger beers as part of your innovation, but what's that shift been like for you guys? Cause I think when I started drinking craft and as much as I've known Firestone, it was always like these big heavy hitters that have always been delicious, but a little bit more high octane to a lot of the innovation transitioning to things that are a little bit more sessionable, lower ABV, more approachable, maybe for a mainstream audience. Well, yeah, yeah. I think. It Go ahead, Sam. Okay. I was just going to say, as far as the barrel program goes and the kind of the bigger stuff that I think, Firestone was really well known for back in the day, you know, still somewhat, but we were definitely one of the the earlier breweries to do a lot of barrel aged beers. And there was always a lot going on in that program because you get a lot of flexibility with barrel aging and blending. And we started doing an anniversary beer on our 10th anniversary. And so that's going all the way back to 2006, where we had that barrel program going and, you know, you could do, um, smaller batches of lots of different kinds of barley wines, stouts. I mean, we were doing a lot of different beers always in that program. And then, you know, blending them together to make these anniversary beers. And uh, for a few years, it was just the anniversary beer. And then 2007, one of the more popular beers that came out of that program was Parabola or Stout. And so, um, or 2010. So uh, 2010 was the first bottle release of that. And so, and then over the years, we added on more of those beers. And so a lot of the beers that have seen the widest footprint. And I definitely, I definitely think that like for the more, you know, enthusiast beer geek level, you know, people out there, like those are the beers that a lot of people see like Firestone, you know, they get traded around, you know, back in the day we would have anniversary parties and everybody would line up to get the new beers and stuff like that. So, um, so I definitely think that that was a, a core part of what we were doing, playing around with the big stuff. Um, and it's only, yeah, I mean, you're definitely right over the last probably, you know, seven, eight years, um, of the propagator, you know, when that era kind of got going that we started doing a lot more of the other stuff. Yeah, it seems like a lot of, you know, old days in the beer industry, innovation typically meant a lot of barrel aging programs and sours. You know, that's what people were like innovating towards. But nowadays, it seems like innovation has its hand more in developing new brands that can be widely accessible by others. And also just things that even whether it's IPAs or any other kind of style you want to particularly develop, things that are just like more within reach for your average beer consumer while still 
being next level or being something people haven't had before. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. It's just a personal thing that I've taken note of. Yeah, and like going back to that a little bit, like we still, I think people outside of our home market kind of saw more of like Sam was saying, our high octane stuff, our parabola and double jack and wookie jack. But, you know, DBA was the flagship for a long time, which is 5% um, English bitter. And then, you know, Pale 31 was like, probably the brewer's favorite beer here for the better part of the decade, um, which we don't, we don't make that anymore. But um, so we were still always doing the, the lower ABV sessionable beers. Um, but yeah, the, the bigger footprint was our high, higher, higher octane stuff. Mm. Now tell me a little bit more about kind of that process in terms of, you mentioned a, a one barrel system and then, having that tin barrel system is is it the case where most of those beers start out on that smallest system and then um you're you're then bumping it up to it to see how it scales at a tin barrel batch and then from there you can potentially see it hit a larger distribution because you know i know that through your program you've had some successes with the likes of like mine haze and hopnosis that were both that both started out as kind of part of this innovation branch and then eventually you know, saw some some larger kind of, uh, you know, distribution, larger reach through a national scale. Yeah, so the, the, the one barrel system, we don't actually have a brew system up here. I just have eight one barrel fermenters. Gotcha. Because um, the way we see it is we have our pilot brewery down in Venice. So any like brewing concept we'll like send down there. A lot of the innovation stuff I do up here is more how would mine haze taste with a different dry hop or subbing out one hop for another one? Um, so that's kind of the stuff I'm doing up here. Um, and mine haze is kind of a good one because that was, I think that was the first beer we really started piloting down at the Propagator because um, we were a little late to the hazy IPA game, but we wanted to, we wanted to do it right, like the Firestone way. Um, mm -hmm. So we're doing a bunch of test batches, testing different yeast strains and uh, malt bills. Um, and hop combos down there and then we we scaled it up here T touch on that a little bit more because i think you brought up a really great point in that you know probably five six seven years ago was when we first started seeing this big boom around hazy ipas a lot of national breweries of, of your all size were you know very quick of trying to get to the market um to make a nationally viable hazy IPA what did you all consider when you were you know experimenting with mine haze and trying to formulate a recipe that could endure the test of time essentially um what what it, both from like you know just basic recipe build but like also more so the the taste profile and finding the right hops and and making it so that it's both you know something that the masses can enjoy but is also uh, financially viable as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a pretty long process here. I think from first brewing test batches, our first round to launching the beer was probably about eight months, uh, maybe eight or nine months. And that was um, like brewing, like, you know, sometimes I think, you know, like knocking out three batches in one month and then coming back the next month and doing two more. And it was just like, it was pretty intense because it was, really out of our wheelhouse. It was learning to make a, an IPA really different compared to how we do it before. So yeah, I look back on that and I think that's one of those projects that definitely um, 
took time. And like Brad said, because it was like, you know, it's kind of that Firestone way where, you know, as a well-established brewery that has a really big program already, when you're bringing something new like that, you have to look at how viable it is in your production. So, you know, we have to make sure that, um, you know, we don't have to go back to the drawing board on hop contracts that we can pull in available hops. Um, you know, it's not like a small brewery that can go out and get some spot buys and then, you know, kind of work that in over time. Like we had to be able to commit to huge volumes of hops to launch a new year round brand like that. So that's number one for sure. Um, so we ended up developing, you know, a blend of, of kind of a larger blend of varieties than a lot of breweries that would rely on maybe one, two or three kind of as a core thing, because that gives us some flexibility. And Brad already alluded to the work that he does up there you know, trying out hop substitution. So every crop year, we have to kind of go back to the drawing board and look at, you know, where the contracts are going, um, what the quality of the harvest was that year, and kind of, you know, retool the recipe to kind of keep the flavor where we want it uh, in a sustainable way. Um, and then the big thing too is like, you know, we knew that this beer was going to go in our whole distribution footprint, and it had to be relatively shelf stable. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, and that's pretty well established in the, in the hazier IPAs now, like, but a lot of people back then, you know, talking, you know, 2017 now, it's like 2017, 2018, um, I guess was when most of that work happens. Um, you know, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on back then. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people were just like, how do you do this? What's going on? Like, and I think even some of the breweries that had already become pretty well known for New England IPAs, they couldn't really explain to you why anything was happening the way it was. And that was kind of the like the frustrating part when you were trying to dig into this stuff. It was like, well, I do this and I do this and that works. And then this other person does this other thing and that kind of works. And then like, but if you, if you mix up the wrong combination of things, oh, well, the beer either isn't hazy or it starts hazy and it's not, or the bitterness is wrong or it's astringent, there's hot burn. So there's all these things that went into like, okay, how are we going to make a beer that we think is like super drinkable, has a great juicy hop flavor, um, has the appearance we want, nice haze, differentiates it, that's not going to go clear on us, um, that, you know, is something we can make and put on a shelf and it can stand up, you know, um, you know, cold chain, we can stand by the shelf life of it. It's going to taste great. So, you know, um, yeah, that was definitely difficult. Um, yeah. and so it was working out, we had to bring in new yeast strains, um, kind of figure out how we were going to do it. I mean, some things, you know, we didn't know until we did it right. Like there was always the question of like, well, do we centrifuge the beer? Like we know we're not going to filter it, but you know, some brewers were saying you could centrifuge them and they would still be hazy. Some brewers were saying, no, it'll go clear, you know? And so it's like, okay, what are we going to do? And I think that, um, yeah, looking back on that, it was a uh, it was a pretty wild time of experimentation, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, what were some of those growing pains even like? Just from my experience working at Sierra Nevada, I remember when Hazy Little Thing came out, and they had the recipe fairly dialed in in terms of aroma and flavor, but it wasn't hazy, and people were really ticked about that. You know, it's like it tasted like a hazy, it smelled like a hazy. People really enjoyed it, but then they looked at the glass. And there was something about that quality of like, well, I can still see through it, at least in those initial iterations of it, that they're like, well, I don't like that. You know, so the beer itself is still every, if you were blind, right? And you had no idea what this thing even looks like, you'd be like, oh, that's spot on. It's great. Especially coming from you guys where it's like, you know, Union Jack has always been one of my favorite IPAs since I had started drinking craft beer, right? Like that major transition from doing something that's like, clear, maybe a little um, more West Coast, your guys own flair to a totally different ball game that you weren't really familiar with. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for us, like once we did a lot of the work at the Propagator and we settled on the yeast strain, 
Russ was harvesting the yeast. Our two other house yeast strains are our ale that's in Union Jack and DBA and 805 is just a workhorse. Like ferments out really quick. It flocks really easy. It's it was never even a question of like, were we gonna get enough yeast? And then you get this hazy yeast where characteristically it like doesn't fall out, which was new to us. Some some Chico brewers had like figured that out a little bit, but to us it was new. So like we completely had to figure out how to harvest this yeast because propping for every batch isn't isn't practical for us at our scale. But that was probably the biggest challenge I think for us. Yeah. Now, similarly, I mean, kind of going back to that decision of um, obviously with mine haze, I think it was pretty kind of direct of saying like, hey, we want to get a hazy IPA out, the, out on the market. Um, how did hopnosis come about? Uh, was it kind of a similar conversation of saying like, hey, you know, we want to grow our hazy kind of house of brands and, and kind of expand it a little bit more. And now I know that uh, double hopnosis is, is about to hit the market as well. Um, essentially the, the double, uh, the Imperial IPA version of, of, of uh, the successful hopnosis. Yeah, I think that one, um, hopnosis was more like we wanted to take, we wanted to make a modern West Coast IPA. We don't, maybe not work yeah. to call it West Coast IPA, but we want to take some of the modern techniques, some of the things that we learned from Hazy IPA and apply it to a clear IPA. Um, and we just wanted to take a beer and kind of bring it, bring an IPA into the modern use, use, using techniques that a couple other people have championed. Um, and then also just stuff we've learned. Um, and double hopnosis is just kind of the big brother of hopnosis. And Sam, he could, he could speak to this a little bit more, but ever since he got down at the propagator, he's been kind of pushing the boundaries of hoppy lager. Um, oh, nice. And that's kind of where hopnosis kind of came from um, a little bit. It's just the work Sam's done down there. So. Would you yeah, say we, like a cold IPA or a hoppy lager? Well, yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> you know, and we, um, Matt actually just wrote um, an op-ed for Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine kind of touching on that issue. Um, and that, that's something that um, that I, I've thought a lot about over the last few years, for sure. Um, and, you know, and we love Kevin Davey um, now, I guess, Gold.Beer is his new project, um, formerly of Wayfinder, where he developed Cold IPA, but, you know, was a was a Firestone brewer also back in the day for a bit. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we were doing a lot of, you know, what we were calling Hoppy Lager, West Coast Pilsner, um, you know, IPL before we, you know, everyone yeah. figured out that 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 for some reason scares people and nobody likes it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, you know, we all found these better ways to, to sell that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we were playing around with a lot of beers like that. Um, that was something I was kind of personally just intrigued by. And there's some other breweries down here in LA shout out to Highland park brewery, hugely influential, great people, um, make a, a killer beer called Timbo pills that if you haven't had seek out, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, and I think, yeah, the whole cold IPA thing was happening. So with hopnosis, we knew we had a great lager yeast in house. Our house lager yeast is comfortable fermenting at warmer temperatures as well. We ferment it cold for Pivo and that's, you know, a very kind of uh, traditional German lager approach. Um, and um, yeah, so, but, you know, if you want to ferment it warmer, you can. And um, it's basically, yeah, it's, it's kind of what's turned into the cold IPA approach essentially is that mm -hmm. um, that kind of just dry, crisp finish you get 
by fermenting that a little bit warmer. Um, if there is a little bit of fruitiness that would be uncharacteristic in a traditional lager style, you know, it's a heavily dry hop beer. It's, you know, I mean, we lean on mosaic, mosaic cryo is kind of the feature hop, a hop gnosis. And so uh, it just works perfectly. Um, and so, yeah, so we finally, you know, tried that down here. We probably waited a little too long. That was something I was kind of dabbling my toes in a little bit. I kept like going, well, you know, they're like loggers and I'm not going to call it just like an IPA or an IPL or whatever. And then finally we're like, okay, we have to make like, just what would we do if we were brewing just what, what we think of as like the best modern interpretation of a West Coast IPA and then ferment it with lager yeast instead mm -hmm. of uh, using our house yeast or, you know, more typically, I think that, you know, the most common yeast strain um, in our area is going to be the kind of Chico family strains, you know. Um, and so, you know, those do have a nice clean character that accentuate hops really well, which is why they're so popular for West Coast IPA. But it turns out that that kind of classic 3470 German lager yeast that's also super popular and widespread um, gives you a pretty similar result at the end of the day. And I, and I think that um, it's just another kind of another tool in the kit that you can use to make a really great, you know, kind of modern West Coast beer. Yeah, and then just leave it up to the marketing department to call it whatever they want, right? <laughs> At a certain point, it's like, yeah, we're trying to just use all of these tools that we've developed to make the best IPA that we can yeah. or best thing that we know is an IPA and like however they want to package it to distribute out to the masses, whether it's an IPL, a, a hoppy lager or a cold IPA, we'll leave it up to them necessarily. Yeah, you know, and I think just like, like anecdotally here at The Propagator, um, people don't seem to care um, like we brewed, um, so I brewed almost the same beer, uh, on a small scale and we've put it on here calling it just IPA and West coast Pilsner and it flies no matter what, they're always super popular. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, as long as it's like clean, crisp, has that just a little bit of malt character and then, you know, a bunch of mosaic, citric character, whatever, um, people love it. So, yeah. you know, it seems like once, once they give it a try, it doesn't matter what you call it. Um, I think out in the market, that may be another story because it, it is hard, you know, in the sea of uh, everything on the shelf these days to stick out and get someone to, to grab your beer for sure. Yeah. With the cryo, um, with cryo ingredient, like cryo hops, I should say, um, it seems like that's something that's obviously popping up a little bit more uh, in the past year or two. Like, are you guys noticing that there's an extended benefit to using cryo hops as opposed to just using any of your other traditional methods? Or is it something that like, hey, we know this is popular right now. We're going to give it a shot and figure out the best way to work with it. No, I think um, what we're trying to, something I'm actually working on now is trying to use more um, cryo or concentrated pellets because um, you get the all the the aroma benefits with less vegetal matter in there so um, from a production standpoint it's going to help your yields um, but from a flavor aroma standpoint you're going to get less grassy vegetal aromas and more um, hop characters that are more desirable um, so kind of yeah. going back to what you're saying in terms of you know very crisp clean you know, West Coast style lager, um, or in this case, IPA, Imperial IPA, you're still retaining a lot of that kind of bitterness hop profile without kind of that residual kind of vegetal kind of grassy kind of taste to it, right? You're, you're, you're keeping all the parts that you're really wanting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as, um, you know, other brewing kind of advantages you get, you know, there's definitely yield advantages. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, these kind of downstream hop products that are becoming more common in the industry right now, you know, the big selling points, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's flavor, but it's also yield and also stability as well. So, you know, everyone kind of anecdotally knows that uh, IPAs 
don't have the best shelf life. You know, the, the aroma and flavor seem to go downhill faster than some other beers. And part of that is just the high hop lows as you know, those um, compounds you're adding are less stable. They tend to break down a little bit faster. So concentrating them and taking out some of the plant material also seems to stabilize the flavors. Mm. And um, so, you know, you're getting the impact and the intensity of higher hopping rates, but you're also getting um, the stability of your beers that are a little bit more lightly hopped. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. And that's something we're definitely still looking at right now. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, we've proven any kind of magic combo, but it's mm-hmm. definitely um, something worth looking into. Yeah. Are you guys, are you tinkering around a little bit more, especially at the, um, at the different locations and on, on premise, like for you guys, like in house, like ex- how much are you t- like tinkering with like a hopnosis recipe after it's already done to come up with new iterations of it that you can potentially sell like mass distribution? Um, I wouldn't say we're always tinkering, like like Sam alluded to earlier, when we get new new lots of hops in um, in order to keep the flavor stable. Um, that's actually become my go-to um, wort stream for single hop trials because it's very clean compared to um, some of our house house sale um beers but um yeah so like it we're not tinkering too much right now we're just kind of trying to keep it stable for the most part um hopnosis but um yeah it's good it's a good it's a really clean profile um before it's dry hop i will say when you say single hop trials it does sound kind of hunger gamesy so i don't know (laughs) (laughs) duking it out in a tank (laughs) to figure out who wins but my mind went yeah hey there's definitely some hops that uh never made it out of those trials you know yeah exactly and survive can you guys think of like a hop that you were just like i don't know why this is catching on or more people are using it because i think this is trash or maybe a hop that you're like i can't believe more people aren't using this (laughs) Ooh, i don't i don't know if i want to trash talk any hop (laughs) you don't have to name name, like your supplier but like (laughs) well i Kind of to piggyback off of that a little bit, but kind of steering it back towards something that you could probably answer a little bit more. What on the innovation front from a hop standpoint? I mean, there's, I feel like we've in just like the last two years alone seen such an explosion of, you know, this new wealth of knowledge around hops, um, especially, you know, in the, in the realms of biotransformation, utilizing feels, um, you know, phantasm powder being kind of a, a big one. Um, what excites you guys the most or, or what, what kind of innovation in the hop realm has been the most exciting to you, uh, that maybe as a, as a teaser of what might be coming down the line for, from Firestone, um, that you all are most excited to play around with a little bit more. Um, for me, I think a lot of it's the new varieties that are coming out. It seems like every year when we go out the selection, there's, there's three or four new varieties that are just crazy popping like one that we've been uh that i've had the luxury of rubbing was a 1019 which just comes off as like crazy peach ring it's it's nuts um so every year it's just kind of like what's gonna come next down the pipe um and also with all these what i've kind of been dabbling in a little bit is these terpene extracts um Mm. which they're pulling it from hops but also from other other things but you know, there's these companies, um, Abstracts is one of them, you can go and you can get just pure citronellol or geraniol. And um, we haven't put any of that into production yet, but it's something I've been kind of dabbling with a little bit, um, which is super interesting. 
Yeah, it, it's it's super cool because I feel like terpenes kind of had a little bit of a bad rap for a lot of years. And, you know, we recently, uh, in just like the past four years, we're talking to the folks at Telluride Brewing. And it seems like, you know, a lot of what folks learned from the cannabis industry have been applicable more uh, towards terpenes. And 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 now it feels like it's it's getting kind of a bit of a revival. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Like, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, we haven't put it into any any beer yet but um we've been but because you could you could drive biotransformation that way too you could add a whole bunch of just straight geraniol and linalool um at the beginning of fermentation and then hopefully that'll turn into citronella um and beta pinene but um yeah so it's kind of just pushing that that's what really intrigues me but there's always new hops like sabro is another one that it, it's such a crazy hop it's just to get coconut out of it's such a distinct coconut aroma to me it's crazy like you can't oh, totally. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that? Yeah. I'm smelling. Yeah. Now I know a lot of times when people think of innovation these days, it's t- it tends to lean towards like, hey, um, hoppy beers, maybe what new IPA, what new iteration we're kind of coming out with. And you guys have already talked about it a little bit about how you're using lager strains to make just like new innovative beers for you guys, but you're not calling it a lager. Is, do you think those days are kind of like done of trying to, hey, we're going to come out with this kind of lager that people are familiar with as a style and try to make this thing happen? Or is it more, because uh, like something like Pivo, for example, one of the best Pilsners on the freaking planet, right? But are you going to come out with like another Pilsner or is it a matter of now utilizing some of these hybrid ingredients together to just come up with beers that don't necessarily have a style? I definitely think that there's still room for those traditional styles. So like, you know, styles like Czech augers are trending pretty hot right now. It seems like everyone's kind of jumping on that. And maybe that's because they were pretty obscure for most people, like as they were getting into craft, like, you know, German lagers have always been as far as like, if you were going on the more traditional route, you know, a Schwartz beer, Pilsner, a Hellas, a Dunkel or whatever. But then all these brewers started making Czech style lagers. And it's like this kind of exotic spin where it's like, they're familiar, but they're a little bit different. And I mean, the funny thing is, you know, if you're getting an American interpretation, who knows how authentic it is. And so that's always a dangerous word because it's like, well, is, is anything we're doing actually like an authentic traditional anything, you know, cause you go over to Germany and you see some of the stuff they do or Czech Republic and you go, Oh, I don't know anyone that does it like that here. I mean, there are a few brewers that really go the distance to try to kind of recreate those traditions. But I think for most American brewers, we're kind of making our own thing and we're drawing upon traditions. Um, so that seems to be happening still. So I, I haven't quite given up on that. And uh, we still have a lot of fun with that. And I think that the value in those traditional styles is they come from a cultural context in which people have been drinking that same type of beer for decades and they've worked out like the perfect balance, you know? And I think that's really important. You go to the Czech Republic and everyone's drinking that 10 degree, you know, four-ish percent pale lager beer. And it's, it's like perfect. It's just the kind of beer you can sit and drink forever and it always tastes great. You never get tired of it. And so like we can learn a lot from that. Um, you know, whenever you kind of go out and try to recreate the wheel, sometimes you're just like, well, it, it worked right the first time, you know, and, and I, I do come back to that. But then at the same time, I think that we're pushing um, the boundaries with ingredients, like Brad was saying with new hop varieties, you know, they haven't figured out how to put Sabro in that beer, right? Like that completely 
throws things off balance. So I think that the cool thing we get to do is we're, you know, it's kind of the typical American approach is innovation, creating new things, it's having new ideas come together unmoored from tradition. And so we can kind of take those influences and remix them in new ways. And so I think that's also really exciting. Like you're saying, like you just, you don't have to worry about style necessarily, but it's all about making a, a really drinkable, well-balanced beer that stands up well, you know, and I think that's the really important part. And that's the skill of what the best brewers these days are doing is like, is taking new ingredients and new combinations of ingredients and making things that don't necessarily fit a style, but draw on the lessons of, of what makes classic style so great and what makes beers that endure. Yeah, I think 805 is like kind of a perfect example of something like that, where we live in this world of everybody's looking for like, what's this new creative spin we're going to do that's like nobody's ever seen something like this before. And it's going to totally encapsulate like everything that every craft drinker in America wants, maybe even overseas. And then you have something like 805 and not to downplay it at all, but it's a very straightforward kind of you don't have to think about it much kind of beer. We don't need to throw a bunch of taglines on this about what it was brewed with and like uh, what style it is or just- uh, Or what sexy uh, new ingredients are in it, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's literally just like, no, this is just really great. And it's incredibly like, I don't have to think about it at all. Yeah. Like it's, and I don't I don't mean, again, I don't mean to downplay it in any way. I mean that like in the most admirable way where it's just like super straightforward, it's sessionable, it's drinkable. Um, it's not over the top of about anything itself it's just like no this is just a great beer that i know i can sit down session and like have a great time with and i think as a brewer i hear this a lot from brewers where like everybody's trying to keep things as simple a lot of people seem like you know like you were saying like i want to keep like i love the traditional styles i think there's still room for those traditional styles and then craft consumers sometimes can be like ah the hell with hellas you know we want something that's like i've never heard of this before you know i want something that's totally gonna blow my palate away and just like is it that it seems like there's there's that constant battle between going like consumers and and brewers sometimes yeah uh, I want to I want to dive a little bit deeper into kind of your all's lager program because uh, I recently got this uh, fluffhead oh, yeah. uh, collaboration with Urban Roots. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. But before we do, let's take a quick break. I want to give another shout out to uh, our new newest sponsor to the show, uh, the Payroll Department. The Payroll Department has been proud to serve Colorado's many craft brewers for 30 years with integrated payroll, timekeeping, HR solutions, benefits, and paperless onboarding. The friendly and helpful team at the payroll department can take care of your business while you focus on doing what you do best, making good beer. And with payroll department's new easy to use app and online platform, your days of waiting through paperwork are over. You and your employees can easily access all of your information right at your fingertips. Each brewery in our state is crafting something unique that brings together community and makes this place feel like home. Don't let payroll and HR take you away from your passion. The payroll department is here to help. For more information, email marketing at payrolldept.biz or visit them online at payrolldept.biz. All right, let's get back into it. Uh, talking about loggers. Uh, and, and this is a little bit of a transition too, because I think some of the coolest stuff that I've had from you guys have been really, uh, really fun kind of collaborations that come out of the Propagator. Tell us a little bit about the, the, the logger program that you guys have been doing lately. I know it's one of the most classic styles, but we talked a little bit about Poppy Lagers, West Coast Pilsners. What excites you from a lager standpoint? And tell us a little bit more about collaborations like Fluffin. I'll let Sam take that one, but uh, while I enjoy his uh, 12 degrees of pale lager. 
Yeah, uh, Fluffhead was a great project. Uh, Peter Hoey, the brewmaster up at Urban Roots, is just one of the best brewers out there and um, been a friend of us for a, a very long time. I mean, I, I've known Peter since I was like just out of brewing school, home brewing, you know, before I even started working at Firestone when he had his Odonata brand um, back, you know, this is probably 2009, 2010, something like that. Um, and then, yeah, then he worked for BSG. He was our rep for a while. And then, you know, when he opened Urban Roots, um, you know, I was super excited and he's just been making phenomenal beer up there. Um, him and Rob are in a great, great operation and they're just killing it. And, uh, yeah. So when, uh, Matt got him kind of, you know, planted the seed of, Hey, let's do something to the propagator. I was really excited. And, um, and he was awesome to work with and just totally like, you know, had lots of great ideas as far as, you know, how we could get a Pilsner brewed. That was a little bit different than how we usually approach it, but, you know, not too far out of our wheelhouse. Um, luckily, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. We, we have a German brew house down here. It's a Casper Schultz brew house and they're in Bamberg and Bavaria. And so that they make brew houses that make an awesome Pilsner for sure. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we don't have a lot of cellar capacity. So that's one of the things that um, I try to keep really tight is, you know, optimizing fermentation. So I've done tons of experimentation here, how to get that, you know, the cleanest lager character um, in a, you know, relatively short amount of time where I don't have to lay it down for eight, 12 weeks. Um, so yeah, that, that beer is definitely kind of the, the result of that coming together. A lot of ideas and influences that he brought and then kind of the, the program that we've worked out here over the last few years. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, on that note, uh, when it comes to collaborations, kind of, I guess, where do you all, obviously, these are breweries that you really respect. Um, how do you determine which breweries you want to collaborate with? How does that process look like? Or what does it look like? I know that, you know, the joke within the beer, brewing industry is that a lot of the collaborations are just sitting around and, and waiting. But I, I, I have a feeling that with you guys, there's a lot more of that collaborative effort that goes into planning a beer actually working on a beer together. Um, take us a little bit behind the scenes on some of these really rad collaborations that you guys have done um, in the past few years. Well, for the can releases that we do here, um, you know, we generally are kind of like looking at the next year, trying to get everything planned out and coming up with ideas for what kind of beers fit well where. And then we kind of have this, you know, list of brewers that we've been wanting to invite to come here. And then we kind of work from that and see where the best fits are. And then um, usually it's, it's mostly ended up working out, you know, it's, it's a little bit tricky if somebody's got to travel. Um, but yeah, that's, that's usually kind of how it goes down. And, you know, Matt's, kind of had a, a list going forever of people he, you know, wants to make beers with that it's been like, why haven't we done this yet? It's been years and years, you know, I think it's mm -hmm. what happens when you've been in the industry for a really long time. And, you know, we didn't have the bandwidth before the propagator to do a lot of stuff like this. And it wasn't until uh, 2020 that we started canning here as a way to keep production moving um, when our tap rooms weren't open. So, you know, we kind of like, we're able to, to pivot there and breathe new life into things here and kind of figure out how to kind of build the program into something a little bit bigger than it had been. Um, but I think, yeah, up there in Paso, you know, Brad can kind of speak to that more, but uh, we do tons of collaborations for our barrel program. Um, you know, I don't know if they're, what you're excited about there now, Brad, but you know, we're, we're always doing that as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun up here. Uh, and I think the process, like Matt definitely leads a lot of that up here, but in general, we kind of try to combine what each of us does well. Um, like we're doing one coming up and we're kind of going to make their IPA, but we're, we want to use our house yeast to kind of see like how that, how that would work. Um, and it's a lot of fun. And up here, I think it's a little bit more sitting around, but um, there's a lot of work that goes on, on the back end 
or on the front end, I mean, like we get them to lift bags and, um, but we're, we're doing email chains for usually a couple months before, just kind of trying to see yeah. what everything that we're going to do. Um, but it's always a good time. It's really more about picking each other's brains and seeing why they do a specific thing and how do they arrive at this and how can we better our program, but also give them something to better their program as well. And I think even just like hearing you guys call it a, you know, a project versus, you know, a collab or, you know, a, a brew day or whatever um, kind of speaks to that. In, in, there's almost more of a, you know, a mental, a mental state to it or, or um, you know, some kind of, you know, there's, there's, you know, collective work being done. It's a project. We're all working on this project together. So I think that's even just, just powerful enough right there. Yeah. It's such a unique thing. I think in craft beer, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> there's not very many other industries, even out in the food world, I was thinking of like, there's interesting brand crossover sometimes in food, um, but it's usually um, products that have a natural synergy. You know, I was just thinking um, there's this canned fish company called Fishwife. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Um, and then there's uh, a um, an Asian um, condiment company, it's Fly by Jing, and she gets her stuff mm -hmm. made in China, but she sells it over here and she's based over here. And so they had this thing where they were like, well, why don't we get our uh, Szechuan chili crisp in with some like smoked salmon or something and make this. And it was cool. When I saw it, I was like, that's really cool to see these two. They're two hot companies run by two women that are kind of in that, you know, kind of high end, kind of the like whole foodsy kind of space. Um, and I thought that was really cool. Um, but, you know, they're not naturally like competing against each other, right? They're, like your chili crisp and your smoked salmon aren't necessarily like, well, which one am I going to buy today? You know? So, yeah. um, I mean, I guess it's all your food budget, but, you know, so craft beer is cool because like we are all in, excuse me, in some ways competing with each other. And yet we, you know, we know that we're all better off and, um, you know, it's like for everyone's kind of enjoyment too, you know, it's like, it's part of what makes this an engaging industry to work in as well. And that feeling. And I, and I like that that energy still exists, you know, um, after all these years, depending, you know, every, everything that happens in beer and it's still something that people prioritize and really want to do. And I think that's really cool. And like Brad said, it's like, you're, you're working with each other back and forth. You're picking each other's brains. Um, you know, every time you step into another brewery or you have someone come into your brewery, they see things a little bit differently, you know, and I, I love it when somebody comes in and they're just asking tons of questions like, well, why do you do this? Why do you do that? It makes me second guess everything we do. You know, I know it works for us, but at the same time, I want to say, well, wow, like you do this completely differently and I love your beer. That's really cool. And you're always learning something. So um, that's sometimes the best thing is like, we strive to make a really good beer every time. I don't ever like every can release. There's a lot of pressure here, even though they're small is like, I want that beer to be killer. And I want, you know, that to be something people are really going to enjoy, but also you've got to get a little bit out of your comfort zone and try something new at the same time. Um, so sometimes when things have been really wild, we've done even smaller scale stuff where we don't even put it into cans first. Um, you know, and then, you know, up there when we do these more ambitious projects, you know, maybe it's something that goes into barrels and then gets blended or something like that. Um, small release. We don't know what we're going to do later. So, yeah, it just depends. What's is that the, a hint uh, that there's going to be a, a spicy Szechuan fish hazy? Is, is that that was like a, a really long uh, tease what we can talk about experimenting, you know? Yeah. What, what Sam was talking about, though, the, the best food uh, collaborations has got to be the Flaming Hot Cheetos mac and cheese. Oh, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> what's that uh what's that time like timeline like for you guys when one of the beers that you developed you kind of putting your name on it 
to know, like it, you, all right, it's going to happen. It's going out to the sales team and then it hits the market. What's that timeline like for you guys in terms of how you're personally feeling to figure out if this is going well or if it's not going well? Are you checking in with the sales reps? Are you like talking to people about it? You checking like IRI reports? Like, what do you? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm anxious like? all the time about it. Like it, it's, it, it, it freaks me out. Like I, I'm not on, I don't brew anymore. Like I'm not like running the brew house anymore, but the first couple runs of something new that we're doing, some new IPA, or I'm, I'm down there like the whole time with them, not doing anything, but I'm actually probably bugging the brewers more than anything else. <laughs> um, but no, we're always looking for that. Like it, that, that it, it's a good anxiety, I think for me anyways, but um, yeah, it kind of never stops. Good. Yeah. Well, and then further out, like, you know, I was Brad, what were we, I mean, we've just been talking a lot about um, next year. And so we have to, you know, finalize, okay, well, what are the new seasonal rotations, mix pack beers? Um, you know, we, we rotate different beers into our IPA mix packs um, several times a year. And so we have to work out those recipes, make calls on where those are going, um, swap in new seasonals. We want to tweak seasonals. Um, you know, do we want to launch a new year round product? Do we want to get into different types of spaces, you know, stuff like non-alcoholic hop water, you know, so these are the kinds of discussions we're always having and kind of doing some longer term stuff further out. So um, yeah, some of those projects, you never know where they're going to go. Some things you just have to brew here on a really small scale and then kind of see where it goes. And some things uh, you just kind of know where it's going way ahead of time. And then you just have to make sure, like Brad was saying, that by the time you get to the finish line that you like the beer was what you wanted it, and it was great, you know, because it's, it's a pretty anxiety inducing to kind of get yeah. to where the rubber meets the road and realize that you don't feel like the products there. Um, so that, that's not a good place to be. <laughs> bring it, bring it back full circle a little bit. Um, you know, we touched on this a little bit at the very beginning and, and throughout the, the conversation today, but we talked about collaborations with other breweries, but it seems like there's a lot of collaboration that happens and symbiosis that happens between your all's two departments. Tell us a little bit more about what that looks like on a day-to-day day-to-day basis and and I guess how those, you know, where where maybe Brad, your your department kind of interacts with Sam's department to determine uh, how certain beers are conceived and, and executed and 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 how it all comes together uh, internally. Yeah, so like we'll kind of start with like a concept, I guess, like something that we want to do. Um, and that's kind of a big collaborative um, goal. Like me, Matt, Sam, we're all kind of figuring out what we want to do. And then generally, once we get a concept, like for a new IPA or something, we'll kind of come up with a mock-up recipe, what do we want to add, we want to try something new, like with our mixed back IPAs. Then we'll send it down to Sam and he'll kind of brew a test batch knowing we can't fully scale it up, but it gets us an idea of what that concept is. He brews mm-hmm. it, packages it, sends it up here. We send it through our sensory panel and um, we have like a descriptive sensory panel and we kind of analyze and see what we like or like what we want to change. And then we'll kind of, if we think we need to, we'll do another batch down at the propagator. Um, if it's just a couple tweaks and we'll try to scale it up as best as possible up here. Um, and it's really like, it's, it's R&D is kind of, I always like to say me and Sam are, two prongs on the same fork or it's all it's, it's a little bit bigger than that because you got like Matt's kind of like the, the the main the base of the fork right we're the two prongs but then but then you have like Kevin Troxel running our GCMS doing all of our like analytical R&D and you got Craig Thomas who's running our um, sensory program so it's kind of there's input from everywhere you know um, but 
Now we just Sam. want Matt Brindleson's face on the end of a fork. And... <laughs> on the end of a fork, yeah. Me and Sam, we dialogue multiple times a week. Um, we have like an official meeting every other week, but we're we're always texting, talking all the time. So nice, very cool. Yeah, I mean, if uh, I see anything out there, I'm just like sending Brad. Even if I was just like saw something interesting on Instagram, I shoot it over to him or like send him something, Twitter, whatever. I'm like check this out, you know, should we be talking about this? And um, you got to keep the ideas flowing all the time. Very cool. Uh, speaking on that note, I, I do want to give a little shameless plug to something that we just published on Porch Drinking. Um, every year we put together a roundup of uh, the, the that year's beer release calendars from all the major breweries all across the country. Um, we do happen to have Firestone Walker's beer release calendar included in this year's roundup as well. So if you're listening to this podcast and want to find out some of the fun kind of innovative stuff that's coming out from breweries all across the country. Be sure to head to porchdrinking.com and check out our 2023 uh, beer release calendar roundup. Um, last question before we let you guys go, what um, what's something that you guys are excited about that's coming out um, through the innovation program that, that maybe uh, both locally and, and also something that might be hitting some of the mixed packs that is a little bit more accessible to the, to the full national market. Um, I would say two things I get I'm pretty excited about this year is um, Oktoberfest again, our, our, our oak, oak aged lagered Oktoberfest. We do it every year, but it, it's, I just get so excited for that beer. Um, <laughs> and then also um, in the fall, we're doing a, um, a revisit of one of our classic IPAs. We're going to try to reimagine um, Hammersmith IPA, which I'm, I'm pretty stoked on. Um, but yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What about you, yeah. Sam? Anything, anything that you're stoked on? Um, I think, uh, you know, double hopnosis. I'm super excited that we have that out in the world right now that, um, you know, bringing back a West Coast double IPA, a new, you know, modern take on that. I think, you know, double Jack for me was just one of those classic beers and we had for many years and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of had a nice retirement we brought it back a little bit, but then, um, you know, moving on to double hopnosis is our new year round is really exciting for me. Um, and then right now, just most immediately, um, the next mix pack rotations for our IPAs, we have, uh, we have a cold IPA in the tank right now, um, that I'm super stoked on. And then, um, yeah, we just have a, a New Zealand hopped IPA that's all New Zealand hops that I'm super stoked on too. So, um, yeah, just, uh, some nice, like light crisp, you know, super hop forward, modern IPAs for summer. And, um, I think those are gonna be really tasty. Very cool. Well, Brad Miles uh, and Sam Tierney, thank you all so much for joining on the por joining us on the Porchcast. Uh, we really appreciate having this conversation with you guys, and always cool to hear about some of the fun stuff that's coming out of Firestone Walker. Uh, be sure to look for Double Hop Gnosis, their new uh, Double West Coast IPA, out on the market here very soon. And then uh, also want to give a big shout out once again to our friends at ONTAP Credit Union, for all of your banking needs, and the payroll department for all of your payroll and P and uh, HR needs, uh, visit both of them and uh, learn a little bit more about how they can help simplify your brewery operations. Uh, this has been episode 104 of the Porchcast. A big thank you to our, our co-hosts, Bryant Vanderweird and uh, Corey David. Great to, great to hear from you guys once again. Uh, Corey, be sure to save that uh, Vietnam story for next episode. I, I definitely want to hear more of that uh, on the horizon. Got you. Most of the craft beer sucks, but there's a couple highlights. So we'll say <laughs> I want to hear about all the pho flavored uh, craft beer that you had out there. So, oh, man. Um, 
<laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us once again. Um, we'll be sure to check you later on the next episode of the Porchcast. Uh, be sure to follow us on all of your listening devices, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and whatnot, uh, and then we'll catch you for the next one. Uh, until then, uh, be sure to head to porchdrinking.com for more information. We'll be covering Collab Fest all weekend, and um, we'll check you later.